Hello, everybody. You're listening to the Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 416 Stats, Scenes, and Subs with Jared Kimber. Big Chillians, and welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. I'm Frank, joined as always with Eddie. How's it going? Yeah, not too bad. We have also another guest at the moment because we have Abby, our new intern, who's observing for the first time. You can say hello, Abby, if you'd like to. Hello. <laughs> there you go. But yeah, so she's going to be helping out with us with a number of things, which is, I guess, it's another more natural way for us to plug if you're listening and you're not following us on any of the social media platforms, search for the Big Chill Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and you'll find us there. It's a better way to, to interact with us and where you actually can get us our, our attention pretty easily. Yeah. And I, th- I think that's the perfect segue, Eddie, to our first topic where Instagram was overloaded by the meeting of Ronaldo and Tom Brady. I don't know if you saw that. The amount of energy that just exploded from that picture Ronaldo scored a hat trick for the first time in 14 years in the Premier League, and then Tom Brady came out of retirement. So what what a energy that picture was. Yeah, I found it interesting because Ronaldo's post of the image said it's always something along the lines of it's always great talking to another goat, which I like the idea that he's just happy, not that it's wrong, but he's just happy to put himself into like the greatest of all time category, just self, self-promoted, self-elected, you know, all-time great, but indisputable i suppose but yeah big meeting and also i don't know if you saw the video clip he straight out asked tom brady if he was done and tom brady kind of didn't answer the question yeah and a couple hours a couple hours later it turned out he wasn't do you think ronaldo impacted that i'm going to assume his mind was already made up but maybe there is a part that if he went there and he saw cristiano ronaldo scoring a hat trick at a fairly old age by you know professional footballer standards that maybe that was somewhat inspirational but i mean i don't know how i feel about the whole brady retirement now because ultimately like do you think in his mind he was ever actually retired or do you think this was just a case of him almost his hand got a little bit forced by people like adam schefter and stuff reporting the fact that he was retired but it feels to me like he never really mentally checked out and in a sense this was all just a bunch of social media nonsense that we could have avoided i think no see I think he did it so he didn't have to get the constant questions for at least that three-week span where he's like, hey, guys, I'm retired. Then it was one week of, oh, my God, Brady's retired. Then everyone stopped. He got to relax for, what, three weeks a month. And then he kind of was like, hey, you know what? I'm not retired. Because otherwise, it would be every day of, are you going to retire? Are you going to play? Are you going to play? Are you going to play? But Are you going to play? (laughs) We've, that is annoying. That's true. See? I mean, we've been through. We've, and you've got we've eight followers through, on Instagram. Imagine it was Brady. <laughs> we've been through 40 days of his speculation that he was going to the Niners or speculation that he might come back. So I don't know how much. But it wasn't bothering him. Avoided. No one was asking him. Was. You really think no one asked him? You think no. for 40 days, everyone just The world said, forgot who Tom Brady was. Yeah. 
I mean, in the 40 days, we probably discussed him four times. So if you just imagine that, the ESPN Fox coverage was somewhat endless. I mean, the speculation linking him to the Niners was so strong. My perspective on this is almost he wanted one or two things to happen from his decision to supposedly retire. Either he wanted Bruce Arians to get fired, and this was his way of making it clear that he didn't like <laughs> playing for Bruce, Bruce Arians. One year after winning the oh. Super Bowl. I don't know. how can Or... He wanted to be traded to the Niners, and this was his. He knew that there was no way that that was going to happen unless he put it in a situation where the Bucks thought he was not going to play anyway. And so I feel like almost from him, one of those two things was the goal, and he was making his poker move. And then eventually, he's realized probably neither one's happening, and he's decided just to come back. Literally hours before free agency was about to open, and the Bucks would have struggled to re-sign some players. Yeah, maybe. I also saw, did you see, he credited LeBron James for partially unretiring as well. So he just wants to cover every great athlete in every sport uh, has, has some impact on him. Because he said, um, LeBron James apparently texted him, said, hey, we're at the best ever at what we do. We're competing with each other at this point for being the best. And then LeBron James dropped 54 points. Was that three days ago? And then Brady texted him back, said, all right, I'll come back then. <laughs> I mean, if that's the case, that's then Tom Brady is a very, <laughs> it's a very easily influenced human being, but which is maybe entirely possible because he's kind of in a mini cult where he doesn't eat strawberries or whatever. But like, uh, you know, I, I, I feel like in his mind, because whenever they spoke to his agent or his dad, neither one of them would ever say that he was truly retired. So I feel as if the people who had inside information and were truly speaking to him about it in detail must have known all along that it definitely wasn't a firm retirement. But, and it's good news for the Bucks, and overall it's good news for the NFL. It makes it more interesting. But I mean, for the people who hate Tom Brady, of which there are many, I did like the just like angry reaction to the fact that he was going to continue playing football, which just blows my mind at just how worked up people can get. Even if they have they don't support any team he's ever played for, they've never had really any personal impact from him playing football, but it's just pure rage. Yeah, I have to admit the more pure rage, at least in my family group text messaging chat we have, is that Joe Buck is now going to Monday Night Football. That created quite the outrage in, in my family chat. We've previously discussed that. I don't get why you don't like Joe Buck. <laughs> I actually, I this, really is, don't. this is the funny thing. I actually like Joe Buck outside of, of broadcasting. Like I've heard him being interviewed two or three times and I've listened to his podcast and it's all very funny. I think he's actually a really funny, really smart guy. I just don't like the way he commentates. I think that he kind of follows a script. And that bit's annoying once you realize, like when he just does the thing where it's like, and it's caught, and he does that all game long. That bit is annoying. And he adds that wasn't bad, Eddie. Detail. That was pretty good. Thank you. <laughs> but but uh, I, I work part time as a Joe Buck impersonator. But he on the streets of Paris, <laughs> no one yes. knows it except except during American tourist season. You just clean up. <laughs> it's a rough life. I've probably made some mistakes and decisions I've made. But he, he, I don't know. He overall, I think he's interesting. He at least like his voice and just he has a presence that a lot of other people don't have in as like commentators or announcers. So he at least has that going for him. It kind of makes sense for Monday. Night. Look, if it's a choice between him and Booger McFarland. I'm taking Joe Buck every time. Oh, These God. are the options we have from. Yeah, Buck. How about if you had 
Booger and Buck. Now that would be a great one. Yeah, it's like a 70s crime fighting <laughs> duo. But And I guess if we're talking about announcers and commentators and uh, journalists, it's a good opportunity for us to just, we'll have a lot of new listeners tuning in specifically for the interview, which is the larger part of this podcast, our interview with Jared Kimber, cricket author, YouTuber, content creator. Uh, and that that interview should kick in about, I don't know, 25 to 30 minutes in. Obviously, listen to this up until that point. But if you really want to skip ahead, you can go. It's, it's no, there. no, no, no. Don't skip ahead. No, not allowed. <laughs> but yeah. But a very interesting discussion. And for if you don't like cricket, following on from our interview with Chris Cairns last week, even if you don't like cricket, I think it's a interesting insight into some aspects of cricketing culture. And definitely if you're a baseball fan and you like sabermetrics and statistics and analytics, it's kind of an interesting way of seeing how that's developing in cricket. Or if you love going to the Caribbean for a vacation, we have a nice little segment on that. <laughs> It's also the first time that anyone's mentioned nipples on the podcast, and he managed to do it twice. So, <laughs> <laughs> if anyone's keeping stats on how often nipples like pop up in our podcast, then there you go. That's two zero. Sam? No, maybe not. <laughs> Sam. Might Sam. Have. Well, Sam's lifestyle choices mean he probably has less interest in nipples, but he uh, <laughs> <laughs> it didn't come up as often when he was on the podcast. But, uh, but yeah, speaking of. Um, I guess, well, it's a hard transition from Sam to Chelsea, but I could have could have tried to do it. But we obviously spoke about the saga going on with Chelsea. We've Each podcast, it feels like we had to do some kind of update on the situation in Ukraine and the situation with Chelsea. Not too much has changed since our last episode when we kind of went over all the sanctions that have been placed on Chelsea. However, the latest development is when we spoke about it at the back end of last week, they were in a position where they were not going to be able to sell. They have now been told that they can sell the club, that they are open to bids until Friday. So if we want to hurry up and put a bid well, we in, got time. we've got until, yeah, we've got a few days. Supposedly they have had over 200 interested parties, which kind of blows my mind that there are 200 individuals or groups of people out there willing to spend 2 billion plus pounds on a football club. The process then is the bids is will it- be closed on Oh, okay, go ahead. I was say, ahead. is it going to be like an auction style kind of thing? Like, no, a, like a silent so auction? Be, no, the bids will be closed on Friday. The Chelsea, the club itself, will then choose who they think is their preferred bidder. Oh. And it has to go to the Brit. It then has to go to the British government who have to approve whoever is going to buy the club. And then the complicated detail is they have to work out where are the funds going. Because obviously this situation all stems from the fact that Roman Abramovich is not supposed to be getting large chunks of money flowing in. So they have to work out where is this $2 billion going to go, which bank account is it going to arrive in, which country is it going to go to. And once the British government has given the okay to that, they then have to go through the normal process of having a football club sold in England, which is you then have this like fit and proper test that the Premier League tries to check whether the owner really has enough money and kind of what to make sure that there's no... Uh, ties to any uh, you know, areas of the world that they don't want to have the ties to, which obviously has worked really well uh, based on the fact that Roman Abramovich bought a club and that the Saudi investment fund bought a club earlier this year. But yeah, they hope to have that. Basically, if everything goes to plan, then in the next six weeks, they think they could have the club actually sold. I got a few questions. When you say Chelsea will decide 
who is that in Chelsea that's deciding? Because it's obviously not going to be the owner, right? <laughs> yeah, he's completely been removed from all decision making. They, over the over the weekend, they disqualified him as an owner. Was the decision <laughs> what, what, a, what a weird terminology. <laughs> that was the official term they used. He's I know, disqualified I as an owner. Um, uh, I don't actually know who within the club is the person making that final decision. I guess it's the the makeup of their board, the community, the sort of charitable fund. Fund. I'm sure they have like a board of fund. directors or something, right? They have. Well, they have a board of directors. The issue is that some of those will have pretty close ties to Roman Abramovich. So I don't know if they want to trust the board to make the decision that they're kind of trying to take away from Roman Abramovich, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, but no, they'll have that decision made. And then... Okay. And then... I mean, they... they I'll say here's my next one then. Is So whoever... Buy, like what you're saying, whoever buys the club for X amount of pounds, is he getting the money? I don't get it. Like, because he owns it now, right? So if someone's going to buy it from him, but he's technically not an owner anymore because he's been disqualified, is he going to be getting any money or is it just going to go into a pot that's going to get just like distributed across England? I don't know if that's clear. And that's the thing the British government has to work out as to where that money's going. <laughs> that's a Originally, big loss. Right, he... That's a big <laughs> loss for him. <laughs> <laughs> Originally, he pledged that any profits he was going to make from the sale of the club were going to go to victims of the war in Ukraine. He didn't say victims on which side or kind of what exactly that was going to look like. Now, I don't think he'll make any profit from selling the club. The other issue is, even but, if they're buying it for... But will he get his money back, I guess, from what he originally paid? Is that something they're considering? Well, the um, so the club is personally indebted to Roman Abramovich. Yeah, we went through that. About... Two billion pounds. So even if they sell it for two billion, then that would only be wiping his debt, the debt that the, he's, the, the club supposedly owes to him. I very much doubt he will see any of the money. In particular, like the BBC just launched a an investigation into his background in terms of how he got the money, a lot of which is not a secret, but more details have come to light about the fact that basically he was involved in some fairly unscrupulous takeovers of Russian businesses in the post and the sort of breakdown of the Soviet Union. And there's kind of more details than were previously available as to how that might have worked. So it continues to make the source of his original wealth look worse and worse. So I very much doubt he'll see any of the money. I mean, he did just, you know, he's everything is being seized everywhere. He just had to move his super yacht, uh, I think, to Montenegro because it was docked in, I think, Portugal. And they've just had to rush and move it to Montenegro to avoid it being seized to get it out of the EU. So I doubt any money will make its way to him. It probably will go to a charity or something, but I doubt I doubt Roman Abramovich will ever see a dime. He doesn't need I mean, he's so rich, he doesn't need the money, assuming that his stuff gets unfrozen at some point, but he doesn't actually need it. Yeah, it's still a loss. <laughs> I'm sure he doesn't want to take. I mean, the whole principle of him owning Chelsea, he never cared about losing money. I mean, that's how they've been successful. They've been the most successful club in England over the last 20 years when you look at the number of trophies they've won in that time span. Well, 19 since he bought it. And, and like, I mean, they've spent over a billion pounds on players. You know, he's famously given away large sums of money. You know, like when Mourinho left, he gave him a Ferrari just as a like an additional severance package. So... I don't think he's been too concerned with losing money when it comes to owning Chelsea. 
and it's kind of achieved the goal that he wanted it to do, which was it legitimized his presence in the UK and it gave him a profile that he otherwise would not have had as just another Russian oligarch. In the end, it's probably kind of been his undoing because everyone in the UK knows who Roman Abramovich is. And if he hadn't known Chelsea, he wouldn't. So for 19 years, it was a great move. And then now it looks like it probably wasn't. (laughs) So I guess shifting gears from real European football to fake European football, uh, we often discuss Ted Lasso on the podcast. And yesterday was the Critics' Choice Awards, and Ted Lasso cleaned up. Uh, so Ted Lasso won Best Comedy Series. Uh, Sudeikis won Best Actor in a Comedy Series. Brett Goldstein won Best Supporting Actor. And Hannah Waddingham won Best Supporting Actress. So they pretty much swept the awards, except for Lead Female, because they technically don't have one, I guess. But So while we were not so hot on season two... I feel like this is sort of success and credit it should have had for season one. And then everyone's realized that season one was pretty good. And then Ted Lasso has that, had that massive moment of becoming super, super popular. And then these awards are kind of recognition for that original achievement more than the second season, which was definitely not as good as the first. Yeah. I I mean, I, 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 yeah, I thought season two was good. And then the other thing you have to think of as there's not many comedies anymore on television. There's not many like true good comedies. So it's, it's, it's a category that's not that stacked, I guess. Yeah, and tying in Ted Lasso with real-life events in English football, I don't know if you saw, but Jesse Marsh, who's the fairly new manager of Leeds United, who is American, had like a super American moment after their first, his first match in charge when he had the team form a huddle after the game on the pitch which raised <laughs> eyebrows from people around England too. Like huddles are a fairly new thing in like British sports anyway, but definitely post-match a huddle on the pitch is totally unheard of. And it did have a lot of people in like the coverage of the game talking about how it felt like it was a scene right out of Ted Lasso, particularly given the fact that they had lost. But we'll see if he manages to turn things around with Leeds because they are in, they're in free fall. But I thought Leeds won. They won. This was not the. They won their second match. This was his first match in charge. Oh, oh okay. Lost. Yeah. Then they had a last-minute winner in his second game. So maybe did they, hu- did mean, they huddle then? <laughs> I don't know. I stopped paying attention. But uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess if you're writing the Ted Lasso script, he had the huddle post-match huddle, and then the last-minute winner. It's kind of going. And if Ted Lasso's, if he's following the Ted Lasso script, they're also supposed to be relegated in his first season. So we'll see. Oh, there we go. If he's able to. Actually, Eddie, I had one more s- small topic for our uh, side podcast of uh, Soup Juice. White Claw is launching a new beverage category. I don't know if you saw this, but they're they're launching a surf-inspired product line. Let, let me read these out. Tell me if you're interested in drinking them. The White Claw Surf Tropical Pomelo Smash. The Citrus Yuzu Smash. And the Wildberry Acai Smash. I don't know why they had to put smash at the end uh, of every one so, of them. So, I mean, I have to come clean here. I've never had White Claw. Because it like, kind of doesn't really exist in Europe. I've had equivalent you know, alternatives because the sort of yeah. hard seltzer movement is kind of here, but not really. Is it just delayed? Because it's actually leaving the United States now. Like that's the, the crazy stat, I think, is it's down, what, 
250% this like the last year and a half or something like that. I think like everyone drank seltzer and now so no one drinks seltzer. A few anymore. brands have launched and like some of the seltzer. bigger like <laughs> alcohol brands have launched their own versions of hard seltzer including like Brewdog has its own hard seltzer. But which they got into there was a controversial moment with Brewdog where they tried to promote their hard seltzer as like a, a health drink and uh yeah, their their CEO had to apologize. It's been a bad year for Brewdog. They've had like a number of controversial they like mistreated employees and yeah but that's a shame as for why the hard seltzer i think people here haven't been able to wrap their minds around why they would get a can of hard seltzer versus just like making a vodka soda or like having a gin and tonic or something i think that's been the difficult sell i feel like the reason it would become popular in a place like paris is because they would want to imitate maybe i mean it, what americans are drinking it took it took that's the only way i can see it becoming time. popular it took become popular kind of like yeah that's what i was gonna yeah. say kind of like beer pong and now it's as as we mentioned when i went to a match a couple a couple months ago there were little kids playing beer pong who i mean they don't associate the game with alcohol they yeah they just want to see red solo cups and they want to throw ping pong balls in them and they have no <laughs> idea where it comes from but i I don't know. I mean, the other issue here is with the people who've launched brands, the hard seltzer brands in Europe, they've been really expensive. It's like you go, you go to a supermarket and a can of it is like five euros. So again, it's hard to con- yeah, it's hard to convince yourself. You'll you know, oh my god, you'll buy a four pack. You know, <laughs> like a four pack is twenty euros. So if you have if you're intending on having quite a few, you're going to rack up quite the tab even in your own house. You can get two liters yeah. of cider for no, ninety nine cents. So it's definitely cents. not going to be the choice of like alcoholics <laughs> or or homeless people. But it's uh, it, it's I don't know. I think that's been a big issue. I mean, one bar I go to, the Cross had its. Oh, I think it had its like own hard seltzer that the the group that owned it created because they're a brewery, so they had their own. And and again, like a can of it was it was like nine euros in the bar, and I just don't know why when you tell. When you tell someone they could have just ordered a vodka soda for six, that's 50, crazy. Like, why on earth would they do it? But as for the flavors you threw out there, I mean, I'd give them a try. I don't think I'm ever going to be a hard seltzer convert, but I'd give it a go. It's it can be refreshing sometimes if it's like sure. Really I mean, I like gin and tonic. Sometimes a nice little change same of pace. kind of concept in a way, but. I'm not opposed to, and you know, like our trip to Ascot always involves like pims and stuff. I'm not opposed to a a, a more refreshing drink than than a beer. Oh, yeah, I don't think I'm ever going to be coming home from the supermarket with multiple cans of hard seltzer. <laughs> three months yeah, till three pims. Months. It's coming up fast. Yeah. Any other topics caught your eye this week, Frank? Does your does your paper cup have your name on it? Yes, my name is Jimmy John. No, on the side. <laughs> no. What's the, what's the word on the side? Freaky. <laughs> oh, I thought it's Frank. <laughs> All right. Thanks. I appreciate that. <laughs> Anything else? No, I think maybe next podcast when we have more time, I want to hear you melt down about Blackburn and Dax return and and all of that, but that's, we've, that's a lot to unpack and unload. So I, I can't, I have to give you more than 10 minutes for that. So. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, and I don't know if I can fully unload because obviously the plan is to have John Buckley on the podcast in the next couple of weeks, and it might be more awkward to have a Blackburn player on if I've spent 30 minutes ripping them apart. Yeah. So, And you don't want to cry on the podcast. No, no, no. <laughs> There's no crying in podcasting. <laughs> All right, on that note, should we uh, switch over to the interview with uh, Jared Kimber? Welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. We're now joined by our guest, Jared Kimber. Jared, in some respects, I'm not even sure how best to describe you. You're an author, journalist, content creator. You're sort of all over the shop at the moment, Uh, podcaster. Yeah, um, I've done everything. I mean, I've been an analyst for teams. Um, uh, Yeah, made a documentary, written a few books. Um, I I, I always go with, when, when you're a bit like me, it's like when they ask you at the airport what job you do, I always say writer. Um, and then if I'm going through a country that knows nothing about cricket, I say cricket writer. Um, and if I'm going to a country that knows a lot about cricket, I say sports writer and hope they don't ask a follow up. Um, but, um, but yeah, so I, everything comes from writing, but yeah, podcasts, I did heaps of sports commentary as well now. Um, essentially unemployed, but seeking, you know, constantly seeking opportunities is probably the best way of putting it. Sounds a little bit like the dream. I mean, thank you so much for taking the time <laughs> to speak with us. We're big fans of your YouTube content. I think you create some of the most original cricket YouTube content out there. I mean, I don't know necessarily how, for listeners, they might be trying to work their way, go their minds around how original yeah. cricket content can be, but you have such a distinct style <laughs> in, the, in the stuff that you create. Yeah, I um, uh, so I started on YouTube probably back when it started, so around 2005, 2006. And then I had, we had a bit of, I had a bit of a breakout with YouTube stuff in 2010, 11 with a show called Two Pricks at the Ashes, which um, makes slightly more sense if you follow cricket. If you don't, it, I suppose it sounds quite weird, like we were fucking a fire or something. But um, uh, so we had a sh- we had a hit, hit with that, and then I got picked up with by ESPN after that. Surprisingly, they asked us to change the name. Uh, and that was 2011. I was like, well, I'm not going back to YouTube. I've surely I've evolved to be on YouTube, but I had a friend who actually worked with at ESPN with me and I trained him up on how to do stuff. And then he left and started his own company and he kept saying, just come back. And I was like, I'm not going to be one of those idiots who sits in front of a camera saying things on YouTube. I did that before people even knew that was a profession. Right. So I was, and then he said, well, why don't we animate stuff? And I was like, what, we could do that? We could, we could put other things in front of my face. That'd be great. I don't even have to get dressed in the morning, right? Uh, and then I suppose we took that and we twisted it a little bit. But there are some shows now where I am like an idiot sitting in front of a camera on YouTube. Uh, but there's also, yeah, a lot of uh, animated stuff and, and other things. But the whole thing was, where how can we um, build a YouTube channel with as little of my face um, on it as possible? Um, and luckily I, through a few things, I suppose Vox was one of the first things I sort of noticed doing that. And then when we started putting these videos up, people kept mentioning a guy called John Boyce. I don't know if you guys have come across him, but, uh, he works for, uh, well, secret base now, uh, was SB nation originally. Um, and, and I, and people were already comparing my work to him. So I went and looked at him and went, okay, what does this guy do? So I can make my videos even longer, um, without my face being on them. Uh, and that's really been the, the real trick at the moment is trying to do that as much as possible, but it, it's been fun. Like the thing is that weirdly, since I left cricket, uh, since I left YouTube, there really, no one really took up that sort of cricket YouTube space. So everyone who's on it really is, you know, young kids trying to make their way or former players who say controversial things, hoping that their YouTube page gets mentioned in a newspaper. 
which means that there's a lot of space in the middle <laughs> between those two things for me to come back in. So uh, it's, it's been good fun. I mean, you touched on a topic there that I actually wanted to ask you about specifically, which was the animations that you have, which I think is kind of a, a very distinct feature of your, who does those? Is that you that puts them together? Is that the friend that you refer to? Kind of how, what's that like? there's so many different kinds of animations. I think if you know anything about filmmaking, you're probably spending the whole time watching our videos going, oh, I see what he's done. Oh, I see how he's cheeked it here. I remember once we ha I did something about an Alaskan bobsledder and we like took apart an animation of like Santa or something and made it look like bobsledding. There's so many cheats in our animation. Uh, the, the actual animations of the cricket are done by a guy called Rahul who you can find on Instagram. I think he's cricket underscore um, animation or it's animation underscore cricket. He's brilliant. Uh, sadly, he doesn't speak English. So I have to talk to him through my, through, through the other people in our company. He only speaks Hindi and I barely speak English. So between us, we're not particularly a good match. Uh, so he does the cricket animations. Almost everything else you see is either made by myself or one of my producers, either Muku, Shubu or Arya. Uh, and it's a lot of it, it's just like, how can we get things to move on the screen so it looks like we're doing great animation? But really, that was something I really learned from John Boyce, because originally I was like, how is he animating 40 minutes? And I just went through and broke down his videos. I was like, oh, it's basically, he just makes things move really slowly. <laughs> well, I can do that. Um, and so there's a couple of really good programs out there that you can get quite cheap, which is Doodly, um, there's another one called Cartoonly. Um, and then, you know, After Effects, Final Cut Pro, there's all these little sorts of cheats around everything. But I think with video essays, which is, I suppose, a lot of what I make, it's like if the story is really good and you can tell them in a way that is engaging, people will be like, oh, okay, well, at least the screen's moving. Something's happening. You know, it, okay, he's made a shit joke. But at the very least, with that shit joke, we know that that means he's going to give us some facts on the other end of it. And that's really what we were trying to make. And uh, it's, uh, you know, it's not the level of animation that, you know, you know, I've made a proper film. So to go from that to literally hacking into different computer systems to make things work is certainly a bit of a downgrade. But at the same time, uh, it allows you a freedom. I, I think I've had more creativity on my YouTube channel than I probably ever had anywhere else because you have the ability to match your ideas with visuals and you can hack into different systems and make things. And, uh, and then occasionally I just say to her, oh, can you just animate this? Because, um, uh, you know, I've got nothing to put in the middle of my video. Oh, I mean, as I said, I think whenever anyone's able to establish a kind of unique look, I think that's a real achievement. And in particular, I mean, for listeners who might be unfamiliar with your work, or I mean, we have a sizable chunk of our listenership will be even un, un, unfamiliar with cricket for the most part. I mean, you go, what Americans would think of as being sort of inside baseball is, is really what you do, <laughs> but for cricket. So the fact that you match what is, you know, very statistically driven content, analytical content with more original visuals, I think is a nice way of delivering quite serious and could be potentially dry stuff with, you know, quite a fun presentation. So in, in that sense, it's, it's a great achievement. Yeah. I think if you if you look at my sort of background, so obviously I'm a writer first, a feature writer with ESPN most of all, and then uh, filmmaker, uh, then amateur historian, or at least professional historian in cricket, but probably amateur historian if we're being honest. Um, and then um, I really got into the analytic side of cricket because no one else was getting into it. My YouTube is just kind of a combination of all those four things. So the ability to tell a very, very dry story about some sort of, an analytical trend that's going on in 
cricket and then compare it to a very old player from the 1970s who has a ridiculous hairstyle with big glasses. You know, th- th- that's how I wrote. But when you write it, you have to like, it's hard to get the thing, the thing through. But so here's a photo of this guy in these stupid glasses. And let me explain to you why he's important to this story. Um, and, and so it really is. I think the YouTube is probably the closest thing to my personality, which, you know, is terrifying, I suppose, uh, for, you know, people out there. But uh, good fun for me. So, so there's a lot of good topics you just put in that little sentence I wanted to touch base on. But I'm going to start. Eddie knows I'm a big fan of analytics. And it's interesting to me that you say there was very little, very few people doing analytics in cricket. Because when I think of cricket, I think that's a sport where the numbers and the data is so cut and dry, you, you know, that you would, ha- you would be able, th- that would have been one of the first sports to me, I would think, you know, like I think baseball, I think cricket, you have all that data there just ready to analyze. Why was no one doing it? And then kind of what was your approach to get into it? And what was some of the first things that you were, you were looking at? So, so one of my good friends is a guy called Andrew Sampson, and he's won cricket statistician of the year a bunch of times, um, which is a real thing. I didn't just make that up. They actually give that out to someone. And he's a big baseball fan. And he's got this his own database. And I said to him, look, I'm not being rude, Andrew, but you're one of the smartest guys I know. You've got this ball-by-ball database. You love baseball. You saw for the last 40 years baseball going in this direction. They just, no one thought about it. I, I can't, it, it, it's so stupid. And, and, and looking back on it, and one of the problems is that cricket is even more complex than baseball when it comes to the sort of scoring and, and, and keeping a data because there's so much more. So I don't know, how many baseball pitches do you have in a game? Like 150, 200, 250, some, something like that. Obviously, a test match is like, wait, let me, let me try and work it out. It's, it's a lot more than that. It's uh, 1,500, something like that. It's probably more. I'll have to come back to you on that. I'm trying to remember my maths. <laughs> but there's so many events. And when you score them in a scorebook in cricket, you can't really show that to anyone because it's so much, right? So what people started doing is we have a shorthand for that, which is the scorecard, which is like the box score in, 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 you know, uh, in American term. And the scorecard is actually brilliant, right? You can, if you're a very good, if you've got a very good cricket brain, you can literally read the scorecard like it's a novel. It really is incredible. So no one went beyond that to go, wait a minute, that's like a novel. This is a novel. Let's get all this other stuff. And it's really only been the last 10 or 15 years that people have gone back to these old scorecards and, and, and uh, sorry, the, the original scorebooks and going, well, we can actually tell when they did this and who did this and all, and all this sort of stuff. That was for the first move. The second move was really when the T20 came in. So for people who don't know anything about cricket, cricket was always one sport, which was a five-day sport called test cricket. And... Uh, sometime in the 1960s, people realized that uh, not, not everyone had five days to spend for their life in cricket and that they'd play on a weekend for one day. Great idea. Then in the early 2000s, someone else was like, do you know what would be good if we had a sport that just went like early evening and was about the same time length as every other sport in the world, so about three, three and a half hours, and we could do that. So we ended up with test cricket, one day cricket, and T20 cricket. T20 cricket was sort of taken over by the Indians quite early on with a league called the Indian Premier League, which is now like cricket's NBA. Huge league, billions of dollars. Um, And what happened was, for the first time ever, it wasn't run nation by nation. It was run independently. So business owners came in. Now, you can imagine, if you're run by governments, as we all know, governments can be quite slow moving with new ways of doing things. 
Whereas you suddenly had a wealth of private money coming in and people going, well, you know, I'm happy enough to spend a lot of money doing a cricket team, but I actually want this done properly. A lot of them were already American sports fans. A lot of them, you know, had grown up in America or studied America. Also, Premier League football was coming through at that time. And I think they just wanted smarter things. So they started looking towards cricket analytics. So that was really between 2008 and 2012. But the, the major form of the game when it comes to writing and media was always the test game. And it didn't come into that. So unless you were really paying attention in T20, you didn't notice it. What happened really then was from 2012 through to probably now, it's, it's spread throughout the entire game. And by 2016, you couldn't follow T20 cricket without knowing something about analytics because you couldn't work out what was happening. Nothing made sense. If you're watching it, it was like a different language of cricket. And there was no way to watch it and understand it. And I've got very good friends who still don't understand T20 cricket because they don't understand the numbers. And they're like, why, why would you do, why would you make this call? That's against all cricket logic. And it is, but it's not against T20 cricket logic. And so the only way to follow that was through uh, understanding analytics. So the boom then came through the media. And I suppose, I, so I was working at Cricket Info then, so ESPN's web, cricket website. And they sort of said, I wrote a piece basically saying that everything written about T20 cricket is wrong because no one knows anything about it. And my editor um, called my bluff and went, well, why don't you go learn something about it? And I was like, okay, I will then. Um, and I literally, <clears throat> I bought, I, I downloaded on my Kindle Moneyball. I did a Coursera course on baseball stats. And then luckily I was getting back into basketball at that time. And I didn't realize that it had spread to basketball, but you know, um, Seth Partnow and John Hollinger and, um, you know, Steve, I think Stephen Shea is his name, all these great basketball, they were doing it. And I didn't really understand baseball specifics, but I understood basketball. So everyone else in cricket was following baseball and I was following basketball, but it's the same basic principles, right? Of, you know, so so we, we started with an, um, a metric called true economy rates, which is basically, I completely ripped off from, um, uh, from true shooting in basketball. Um, which was we had to make it contextual because we were talking about economy rates and they didn't make one guy would bowl one over at one part of the game and one guy would bowl an over at the other part of the game and the two economy rates didn't match up. And so from that point forward, it, I think a lot of people started to get more involved. I probably just threw myself in a little bit more. Um, I got some access to, to some databases. Uh, ESPN took it a little bit more seriously. Um, and then I think, I'm trying to think when, I got offered a job. So I started writing analytically about cricket in must have been late 2017, early 2018. And I was offered my first job four pieces later. Because there were so many people, so few people in the sport writing about this stuff that literally I wrote four pieces. And one of the uh, one of the big bash teams said, Do you want to come work for us? And I was like, I haven't even finished reading Moneyball yet, guys. Like, I haven't done I haven't done all the things in my Coursera course. Like, Let's slow down, but that's how few people were doing it. And by, so I really took it seriously from late 2017 into early 2018. And by the end of 2018, I think I had four different jobs um, offered to me by cricket teams, which tells you how quickly it all changed and, actually, and also how lucky I was. I mean, I'm sure I'd love to touch on the work that you then did with actual teams. But, I mean, you're obviously taking inspiration from baseball and you have kind of the father of sabermetrics in Bill James who spent a long time early on as sort of an outsider in the kind of underground movement within baseball and even within Moneyball, right? That's a big plot line of the whole kind of Moneyball mm. story is that it was someone kind of going against the grain and throwing out a traditional approach to baseball. 
Why did you feel like in cricket, the adoption rate was so much faster? Was it because of the progression that had been made elsewhere or because of the culture within uh, the sport? It wasn't faster because uh, Bill James was doing his thing in 1980 and uh, we started in 2008 and really it didn't take over till 2016, 2018. So it wasn't faster. What happened was that so many owners, so, so that IPL that I talked about before, the Indian Premier League, then there was... Um, then there was a league in the Caribbean, the Caribbean Premier League. Then there was the Pakistan Super League, Bangladesh Premier League, right? All these different leagues popped up in different places. All of them for the first time ever, team owners, right? So if you suddenly, if, if in 1985, you didn't have the MLB, but you had baseball, and then in 1985, you had the MLB, probably Bill James's stuff comes in quicker, right? Because everyone's looking for an advantage. Everyone's starting from the scratch. When you have a legacy product, you have a bunch of old guys spitting tobacco into a bucket. It's a little bit harder to convince everyone. What we had was a sport still in its infancy in T20 cricket, and we had a bunch of people bringing money into the sport. So that's why it pushed forward. It's still not uh, every, not every cricket professional cricket team in the world still has an analyst. So it's not like America where you have dugouts full of people and you know uh, you know there are twenty people decoding every game and everything. We're still a long way back from that in cricket, but the people who did break through like me suddenly got offered like I, I, there was one year where I could have been working in the one year in Bangladesh, Scotland, St. Lucia, Melbourne. Where was the other job I was offered? Somewhere else. I can't even remember what the fifth one was. Like in one year I could have been working for five different teams on like, you know, what, I mean, what a Bangladesh and St. Lucia got in common other than cricket, right? Like they two different, you know, worlds and, you know, then you've got Scotland, oh, you know, and, and, and all these jobs were happening. And it was really because there were more jobs at that point than there were people doing what I was doing. So I really think it was kind of a perfect storm. But it, it's slower than the other sports in some ways. And part of the reason is every basketball court's basically the same. I know that, you know, people will say Boston, you know, in Boston, the garden doesn't quite, you know, the, the, the floor doesn't quite bounce the same way and all that sort of nonsense. But essentially, all basketball courts are the same. The one thing that has sort of slowed down analytics, especially of recent times in cricket, is that cricket pitches are all completely different. So if you go to Guyana in the Caribbean, uh, that is the ball never bounces above your knee height and it's an absolute shithole, shit right? Like terrible, terrible cricket pitch. And then if you go to the Wacker in Western Australia, uh, literally every ball bounces above your nipples, no matter what you do to it. Like, you know, I, I could ball at my pace and bounce someone and hit someone in the head on that wicket. And we probably very quickly reached a saturation point. So the next thing is, how do we catch up with the sorts of things that football, uh, you know, soccer, sorry, depending on your, where your audience is, um, and American sports have got to. So they've gone well beyond what we did. But what we've done, to go back to Frank's point before, is we've just opened up. We've gone from the scorecard to the, to the school book, and we've opened that up digitally. And we had a big rush, and now everyone's sitting around going, oh, we've worked all this out now. Maybe we don't need all these analysts. But what we haven't got to is using the Hawkeye data, which I think is just coming to baseball, but we've had it in cricket for almost 20 years now, uh, which is incredible technology. You see that used in the tennis. Um, but not everyone has access to that. That will be the next. If, we get, if, that, if that gets opened up to everyone, cricket will change dramatically because of how much information that we actually have. And we've, we've had it, as I said, for well, the best part of 20 years. So um that that will take it forward but there's still a lot of <laughs> so so in, in in american sports you you know you have a lot of owners who own the teams because the teams are worth a lot of money 
in soccer, professional football, you have a lot of people who own the sports because they're trying to uh, uh, distract you from how many people they're killing in their home country. Uh, and in cricket, we have a lot of people who own sports because uh, they, they can take Instagram photos with their famous, favorite cricketer. We're going to run into that as well. But we then have the, half of cricket is this free, free market and the other half is still run by national teams, which is a 75-year-old man who doesn't really, he still uses, I can't even say he uses Hotmail. He's like, his assistant uses his Hotmail account for him because he doesn't know how to use it. Um, so there's always going to be like a ceiling there of how quickly it could go in cricket. So it had a big bump and now it's slowed down again. And it really won't, uh, until we get spatial tracking cameras like you have in baseball and basketball in the NFL, uh, and football, uh, we still don't monitor the players on the field correctly. We don't monitor the ball in relationship to where it is on the field. So when it's on the when it gets bowled and hit, we know exactly what happens. Once it's hit into the outfield, no one follows it because it doesn't have a sensor in it yet. So little things like that we haven't caught up with. Um, but what you have in cricket is a sport that has been professional for 250 years, and it is very much run by people who are 350 years old at some time. <laughs> That's great. It's it's so fascinating that I, I love the analytics side, but I, I think, you know, Eddie mentioned, we should probably go on to some of the teams and clubs and, and places you've been. So one of the interesting to me is, is you said that you were an analyst at St. Lucia and were you able to go there? Like I, I've watched a decent amount of the, the Caribbean premier uh, premier league and it's, it's pretty wild and fascinating to me. Just the atmosphere is, <laughs> is pretty crazy. And, and they, they seem to genuinely just love it so much and, you don't expect it, I guess, is, is kind of what I was thinking. What was that experience like when you were there? Yeah, I think they market the Caribbean Premier League as the greatest party in sports. Or <laughs> it, something it looks like, like it. And it really, <laughs> yeah, it's not like that in every island. St. Lucia's a bit more calm because St. Lucia's a French island. And they do have cricket, but it's not their sport, if that makes sense. Um, but when you get to Barbados and Trinidad, Jamaica... Guyana, I always said the Guyan, the Guyanese crowd are completely ruined by the fact that they love their team, they always have a good team, and then they have to play it on a cricket pitch that actually ruins the sport. But they get in, and it's like people hanging out of the grandstands there. You've got full bands playing. It's like, you know, Calypso in one place, but the next island will have SoCal music, which I didn't even know anything about before I worked in that league. I had to learn what SoCal music was, something to do with Trinidad. It's like dance music, but more fun. I can't explain it any better than that. Um, uh, I think I've, I think it's called SoCal. I hope I haven't mixed up the name, but it's incredible form of music. And you have DJs and you have uh, women in carnival um, uniforms. It really is completely a bizarre experience to go into. But for me, like I was a journalist, I, my first offer was from an Australian team to go back to Melbourne. And uh, uh, they had offered me the job. So I'd left ESPN. And in the meantime, St. Lucia had offered me a job. And I was like, so I, so I went there first. So I literally went from being a journalist a week earlier to being an analyst. The people I had written about were in my team. And uh, I, I don't know how, how much you guys know, but there's a couple of uh, great writers who also do a podcast, uh, Ben Lindbergh and Sam Miller. They do the, is it called Evolving Wild? I don't want to get the name of their podcast wrong. So they did a similar thing where they were journalists and they became um, analysts. Well, they became like general managers of it, like, I don't want to say minor league, it's probably unfair, like a farm league, you know, baseball team, like the shittest league in, in baseball, they, they took over. And I'd read their book and I reread it again on the plane over to St. Lucia. And I contacted Sam and said, you know, what advice can you give me? And when I told him my situation, like they went in and they had like guys going from junior college to play, you know, um, 
Uh, they're basically guys who were never going to be professional baseballers, but wanted one last summer to play with them, right? And I was going in, and in my team was David Warner, who had made front page news almost everywhere in the world for being part of a scandal called Sandpaper Gate, which you could Google, which involved literally a human man putting sandpaper into his underwear live on TV. That I'm not making any of this up. This happened. Uh, so he's one of the most famous cricketers in the world and a great cricketer. Uh, you then had Darren Sammy, who's like the president of St. Lucia. He's uh, more famous than anyone who's been from St. Lucia in a very, very long time. Had a guy called Kyron Pollard, who's one of the most famous cricketers on the planet. Like all these ridiculous people. And I've written about all these guys. They're more than aware I've written about them. And I have to go in. That's a weird enough environment. I'm now leading team meetings, discussing tactics with these people. And then three days later, we're in Trinidad. And there are people hanging off the roofs, cheering the game. The music was so loud that you couldn't talk to anyone who wasn't like in your ear. Um, it was it was such a weird league. I mean, West West Indians and, and people from the Caribbean, a lot of people say they don't love their cricket anymore. I think it just wasn't packaged the way that they wanted it for a long time. And the Caribbean Premier League, which hilariously is run by Irish people, but um, came in and really soaked up the West Indian life. And it's if you've only ever been to the West Indies in a resort, you probably don't really get West Indian life. Like, you know... Uh, I've been to the resorts in 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 um in the Caribbean where all the Americans are hanging out. That's not what the Caribbean is like. You need to go to the center of town and see how they party, or go to Carnival, um, or just go to any rum shack and ask to play dominoes with a random guy. Um, you know, there there will be a John Candy in every bar who never left because uh, of how much they love it. That's a cool Runnings reference. You, you can cut that out if you want, but. That's the kind of West Indies that I think they managed to capture for the Caribbean Premier League. So it's almost like, I don't know, if the NBA wasn't run by people who think they know what's fun. Like, imagine if kiss cam wasn't a thing, but people were just kissing because they were horny. That's what the Caribbean Premier League is like. Um, What a a description. (laughs) Can't wait to clip that one out. (laughs) You know, know, like... like, It's so uncorporate in its in its way, and it's so brilliant that the way that it lives, and you can't help but so West Indian cricket fans, most cricket fans. Oh, just fucked up my headphones there. One sec. So England dominate cricket because they invented the sport, and then through their colonization and ruining the rest of the world, they spread cricket. You know, ruined the world, but gave them cricket. It's almost fifty fifty, I think, in some ways. But while doing that. It means that a lot of cricket is run the way that it is in England. And in England, that's why we wear all white, right? That's why they, they eat cucumber sandwiches. That's why we stop for tea. We actually stop for tea in our sport, right? Despite the fact I've never drunk tea in my life and hate tea, I still have to, when I'm playing a game of cricket or when I'm covering it professionally, I have to stop for a 20-minute tea break. It's stupid. But in different parts of the world, it developed in different ways. Like in Australia, we really rebelled against the English side. So if you go to cricket grounds, especially back you know, 20, 30 years ago, they were quite vicious. Um, you know, there was a lot of throwing urine up in the air during uh, um, you know, Mexican waves and throwing golf balls at uh, opposition cricketers. Not exactly how the England uh, do it. And the other country that I think really took it their own way very early on was the West Indians. But because they fell out of love with it, because their team didn't get very good, they left. I think the Caribbean Premier League is allowed for younger people to come, but also the old guys who like yelling abuse at everyone. They find, you know, it's easy to yell abuse when there's 5,000 people around to laugh at your jokes. If it's just you and your friends who you play dominoes with and you're yelling abuse, it, you just sound like a crazy person at a certain point, right? So I think the Caribbean Cricket Premier League really um, did all that. But what a weird place to start my like analytical journey. 
We're like, literally, I remember one time I'm like trying to get my laptop to work and there's like three women walking past me, full carnival, you know, basically just nipples and, you know, vagina covered. Everything else is there. Feathers up out their ass, off the top of their head, walking around on like stilts or something. And I'm sitting there trying to get Excel to work. It, you know, it's a weird place to, to begin that kind of thing. But, you know, I, it, was a, it was a great experience for me. I worked for one of the worst owners in um, professional sports. So I got to learn everything you should not do when it comes to running a team. And I had a, a great amount of fun um, when, when doing it. So I guess I know my next vacation spot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you Trinidad in Guyana are the most fun. I'm trying to think. Ah. Oh. See, the problem is if you go to Barbados, there's just too many white English people. <laughs> Eddie's favorite time. vacation spot. There's a really fun one. And I don't know if I'll have a team for that much longer, but St. Kitts is really good, except for all the Americans. But St. Kitts is great because the, the, the crowd get into it. And then there's just a whole beach with nightclubs that you can go to afterwards, which all the players go to. Um, which is good fun. So it's basically some kids when, when there's a cricket tournament on, all there is is cricket fans, cricketers, and Americans who couldn't get into veterinary college in America. An interesting mix. Now for some, for some context, um, my mother is, half of her family is from Guyana. So I have sort of my Guyanese ta- my ties and and have gone there. I mean, I think the only downside to visiting Guyana for cricket is, is the location of the stadium too, is a, is a bit of a downer. Oh. But I, I remember I did it. They, they found out that I was there once and they were like, ESPN journalists will get him on like local radio. And like, she was like, well, how do you feel about Guyana? And I was like, I look, I love it here. Um, it's like a combination of the West Indies and uh, the subcontinent. It's got this great vibe. And she's like, yeah, yeah. And they talked me up and then she, and then like, you know, we went to a song and she came back and she was, do you really like it? It's kind of shit here. And I was like, <laughs> my God, even the locals fucking moan about it. Uh, but I, I, I love Guyana. The food there is incredible. The f- you know, as I said, you get out of the resorts in the Caribbean and it's an incredible, and every island is so different. Grenada is my favorite. If, if you're going to, if you ever have a chance to uh, have a look at some cricket in Grenada, Grenada is, it's basically only known because Ronald Reagan um, took the place over. It's one of my favorite places in the world. It doesn't have that many tourists, uh, great people, great food, great beaches, um, and less English people, which is always good. Eddie, I wonder when he was in Guyana, if he heard about our softball victory. Yeah, it's true. We won. We're very famous uh, Guyanese athletes. <laughs> we, uh, if, we wasn't mentioned to me, but next time I go back, I'll ask around. You can ask. I mean, we might be one of the only uh, Guyanese teams to have won an international tournament recently. Ten years ago, we were in Paris, and uh, there's an we were playing on an American softball team, fast pitch softball team here, uh, in this kind of weird league that takes place here, where there's kind of it originally was a, a Japanese only league, and then now there's multiple Japanese teams, a kind of Dominican team. It's, it's this weird experience. We were on this American team and we were told that there was this embassy tournament being organized coming up. And so we asked, we were given this number of this sort of, I don't know, someone fairly high up in the American Marines who was based in Paris. And we asked if we could try out for the team. And we were told that they didn't need anyone other than the Marines, that they would be fine. And they would win this tournament with just the Marines. So we decided that we would form our own team, but we were told the only requirement was we had to represent an embassy and we had to represent an embassy that definitely wouldn't be submitting a team. And so we kind of thought for a second and just because with my mother being um, sort of Guyanese, we decided, well, that's the embassy we represent. They don't actually have an embassy in 
in Paris. So I wrote to the consulate in London. They gave us the okay to sort of represent them loosely. And then as it went on, we went on to win the tournament. So I think we're one of the few sort of individual sporting successes for Guyana in, in the last couple of decades. Yeah, they haven't had much of us. They had a great cricketer called Shivnaran Chanderpaul who had the weirdest technique uh, probably in modern cricket. And eventually he was fired. He, after having a 20-year career as a great player, he was let go by a text message. Uh, not ideal. Not an no. ideal way to find that your career is finished. No. I mean, it's bad enough if that happens and you've, you know, that, that's like bad if you've been dating someone for six, six months and they break up with you by text message. Imagine like being the best batter your country has for a long period of time and then just go, sorry, we don't need you, Shiv. Have fun. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's not the softest way to, 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 to land the blow. I wanted to ask you, we have one set of questions we sort of wanted to ask you about changes to cricketing rules that you thought could be implemented. And I know you recently did a video about how <laughs> test match cricket could be changed. Um, but I, I, one thing you mentioned was, which was the lack of sort of spatial data uh, in the, what do you think the impact of that type of data could have on traditional fielding positions, which in some respects seem kind of arbitrary in, you know, in terms of where people are being placed. I know that there's a lot more, if you like watch, say, Owen Morgan, he's putting a lot more thought into maybe some of those placements. But how much do you think that could be impacted? And do you think there are, say, positions that exist right now, which would just would never be used in the future once kind of data has come more into the game? No, I can't imagine it. I mean, a cricket sort of, I always say that like NFL quarterbacks or even high school quarterbacks get these huge playbooks. You couldn't actually write down all the fielding combinations in cricket because it's endless. And I think that there's always a reason for a fielder to be in a certain place in a certain time. So even if you might get positions, if we had more data that would suggest uh, that some positions are not as useful, but I don't think you'd ever get a, there's no reason for never to put a person in a random spot in cricket because on any given day, that's where the ball's going, if that makes sense. I think what would probably, uh, so cricket's had two incredible periods where it was, well, in some cases, hundreds of years ahead of uh, the world, but in other, in other cases, you know, 80 or so years ahead of everyone else. The first one was something called body line, where we started, so in baseball, obviously, if you hit the batter, he gets to walk. And in cricket, if you hit the batter, uh, you get to bowl at him again with a broken arm. Uh, and so it, there's a much more uh, much more violence involved um, in, in cricket. Uh, and it's a different kind of courage than you need for other sports because a lot of it is not courage-based until someone has hit you and then you shoot yourself. Um, and so like rugby players, for instance, when they play cricket, they back away and they're like the toughest athletes there are. They don't wear pads and they just run into each other. And even they're afraid in cricket. So it's a really weird kind of bravery. And Bodyline came out of the fact that there was a guy called Don Bradman who uh, was, I suppose, in some ways, the Babe Ruth of cricket. In fact, there's a photo of the two of them together. Babe Ruth was a Don Bradman fan and Don Bradman was a Babe Ruth fan And uh, back in the days when cricket was still quite popular in America. And um, uh, he was that good that they had to just bowl at his head because there was no other options left, right? And the way they found out about this was in the 1930s, they looked at cinema footage. So, uh, you know, old Pathé reels, they had a few reels of him batting and they went through them one after the other. That's the birth of video an analysis, right? And cricket, it only took us about another 80 years after every other sport had already started using that normally for us to go, we should go back to that video analysis that we used to stop the greatest batter ever for a little while. 
it's a bit like baseball when like was it Ted Williams when they went oh we should we should actually start moving the the fielders where he's hitting the ball and then for about 50 years they went actually let's stop doing that because it worked with a really good guy why would we want to do it for the really shit players the other thing that cricket was massively ahead of was everywhere that the ball was hit on a field some old fella would draw a line and we did it more for the boundaries than for the for the uh, ones and twos and threes. So when the ball hit the rope or hit the fence or went over the rope or fence. And someone would mark them. And we've got these going back for, I mean, I think the oldest ones are over 250 years old. That's, I mean, cricket's so ridiculously old. And we have someone, so-and-so made runs and here's his lines on a graph of where he hit the, hit the ball. No one ever thought to mark where the fielders were. So what we really have is very, very great maps of where fielders weren't standing. So you could see one part of the wicket, there'll be like a bunch of boundaries in this direction and a bunch of boundaries in this direction. So you know there's probably someone standing in the middle and this guy's trying to hit it on this side of him or hit it on this side of him. Uh, and so that was, um, we, we are now in the analytics era and we still don't know where the fielders are. So we have companies like Opta, who I think do some stuff in American sports. They also do um, football stuff. They're, they're a, football, uh, a football professional soccer company, but they also did cricket. And I like sat next to them. This must have been 10 years ago going, what are you marking? And they showed me our oh, shot type and all this, all this great stuff that I now use. And I was like, you haven't said where the fielders are standing. Oh, we could, that's just too much. And I was like, I kind of feel like that's an important thing. If you get spatial tracking, obviously, no no little Muppet has to be pressing into their iPad where the fielders are. We can just work that out automatically. Uh, so I don't think it would change fielding patterns, but I think it would certainly, what, it, what it's done is it's given captains certainty. So having the Hawkeye data and even having people do it manually means that if I go into a bowler now and I say, you really need to bowl back of the length outside of stump, which means, is this a, are we is some of this going out on video? Some I'll make sure this bit goes out on video, yeah. So if I'm standing here, it's basically up here, right? So quite high, right? In this area. If I would have said to a bowler before you need to bowl there, they'd be like, why would we bowl there? I'm I'm gonna bowl where I bowl. Now it's like you need to bowl here. Here's the data to be able to back that up. So that's what will happen with the fielding positions. Um, you know, I think, you know, we've seen We've seen what baseball's been able to do. And, and let's be honest, baseball was idiotic when it came to fielding positions for the longest time. Just like, we're just going to spread them out everywhere, even though this guy only ever hits to one side of the field, right? Um, cricket was always a lot smarter than that. And, you know, always put fielders where it thought players were hitting. But there's a difference between putting fielders where you think players are hitting and putting fielders where you know they're exactly hitting. And I think that's what we'll be able to get to with that kind of spatial tracking that you're talking about. And we can then work out, so obviously the one difference between cricket and baseball when it comes to hitting is batters actually change the face of their bat depending on where they want to hit it. We'll be able to understand which players are better at that and are worse than that once we start getting that kind of data in as well. So we really have to track the bowler, the field placement, and then where the fielders go. Those are the next three biggest things because we're tracking most of the other things at the moment. So, uh, you, well, just be, you say baseball took a long time to figure that out. I mean, they've now they're now making the shift illegal in their new uh, players, you no, know, agreement. It, so. I mean, what? It's, oh my god! So that that was one of the things. I think I might have been on Ben's podcast once, and we were talking about this. Like, I would watch baseball in the nineties, just going, just put everyone on the leg side. What do you call it? left field? Yeah, yeah. Everyone is swinging in that direction. Why on earth have you got 
so many fielders on the other side. It made absolutely no sense to me. And it's funny when you see these things. It was, I always used to do the same. I played a bit of basketball. I was like, why doesn't everyone just shoot three-pointers? Like, why doesn't a team just go out and find the best three-pointers? And it, it, it takes an outsider says that. And, and if you say that to people inside the sport, they'll be like, right, you've got to understand that three point, there aren't that many three-point shooters out there and blah, 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 blah. And you've got to understand that, you know, we can't do the shift for all batters. Blah, blah. And it's like, actually, we can do these things. It's just that because you guys are so used to the sport being played that way, you don't do it. And there are plenty of those with cricket. Like, for instance, for generations, we used to bowl outside the stumps. So away from the thing that gets the batter out. And it's like the last couple of years with the data are like, Maybe if we aimed at those things that dismiss the batters more often, we might get more wickets. And I think it's easy to say that. NFL is another one. I'd be watching NFL go, why is everyone running the ball? You get like two-yard gains. Throw the ball. Like, that's where all the field is open. There's no one out there. Like, and I think that what data allows is for people like me who never understood sports to be like, look, we were right. We might be mad, us people, but we've got a point. And, and it just takes a while for these sports to change. And so that's what cricket needs. It needs the technology. And then it needs for a couple of years of the coaches going, you know, uh, yeah, I see what you're saying, but we're not going to do it anyway because we never did it in my day. And then eventually it all snaps and suddenly, you know, everyone's throwing the ball in the NFL, right? Yeah. And, and you're def I was going to say, you're definitely seeing that in the NFL now where you're starting to see the coaches who are trusting analytics and, you know, not trusting it one time and then it not working and then backtracking and say, we're not going to trust it. You know, there are coaches now who they're going to live and die by the analytics because that's, you know, you have built up data over a long period of time. It's statistically going to work. So um, exactly. I mean, my, my only analytic thing with the NFL is that I used to play John Madden and it was much better <laughs> to throw the ball. That's all I've got to add to it, but it made sense on the computer game. And I generally think it would, it made sense on NBA jam to shoot three pointers and it made sense on Madden to throw the ball further. That's all I'm saying. So, so what are the other, um, cause Eddie and I actually did discuss that, you know, we want to kind of shoot some things off of you about how the game could be changed. And then literally you just posted a YouTube video, I think it was yesterday or the day before about how you can change the test game. And one, the thing that I was going to bring up was something I think you touched on. So maybe you can just touch on it briefly here is when and how can cricket be less reliant on weather and conditions? Is that ever going to happen? Or are there ways that it can happen that it's starting to, I, I mean, especially for test cricket, I mean, you could, you could lose two, three days because of bad weather. And is, is there anything that it's, is this ever going to be different? So test cricket is so difficult because it, ha well, well all, all cricket is so difficult because you can't play it in the rain, right? A bit like tennis and baseball. That's fine. I think we can all accept that, that there are certain points, that certain sports that you can't play in the rain. The problem with cricket is you also can't play when there's too much moisture on the ground. And you also can't play just before, while it's starting to rain and also just after it's rained. Um, and so, and you also can't rain, you also can't play through drizzle. So I know there are some tennis tournaments you can't do that. Obviously playing on grass becomes quite tricky if there's a little bit of rain, but you can basically play in the French Open until the balls get too wet to go up in the air, right? And you can play baseball through a little bit of drizzle without too much of a problem. Cricket, we can't do that because the, the kind of balls that we have, one sec. So it's a leather ball, like baseball, but baseballs are horsehide, which I think is slightly different. So this is, this is just cow leather. And you can see, if I can bring it anywhere near my camera, you can see that once it gets starts, it starts to get the lacquer off it, it starts to chip open a little bit, right? 
it says a rubbish ball, that's fine. Um, you can see that it starts to chip open a little bit. Once that pink bit, there's got to be a better word for it than that, but once that pink bit gets wet, the ball becomes almost useless. So you have about five or 10 overs where it does what you want it to do. And then eventually, if anyone's ever had, uh, you know, a lovely leather jacket, you know, suede jacket that they've taken out in the rain, there's a whole Seinfeld episode about that, right? Eventually it gets ruined. And what happens with this is that leather takes all the moisture in and the ball just gets bigger and bigger. Um, and you can't get, it, it's useless. It's, it's almost not fit for cricket anymore, right? So there's problem one, that these things don't play the game the way that they should be. Problem two is that we play on turf. Think of it, the best way of explaining it is, imagine Wimbledon, but baseball, all right? So it's, it's a grass thing and it lives and breathes. When it gets wet and you're throwing, so these are, I think they're roughly around the same weight as a baseball, about maybe a little bit harder than a baseball, I think, altogether. Um, but, but more or less the same as a baseball. Imagine it hitting grass on a wet surface. So what two things happen. The first is that when it's a little bit wet, it literally digs out little holes, right? And it bounces straight up. Now, if someone's bowling at 90 miles an hour or 95 miles an hour, the last thing you want is the ball coming vertically at you after it bounces. And also it's worse because it doesn't always do that. Sometimes it goes slow. So you're thinking, oh, I've got to protect, and then it's coming up here. So it's dangerous. The second thing is, even if that only happens for an hour or a couple of hours, what it does is those little divots are still on the pitch from all the times you've done it. And it means that later on in the game, when it gets dry, they crack. And now you've got the ball can hit them and go in any direction. So we can't really play in the rain because the ball would get slippery and dangerous. And also people, you know, people are running into bowl and that's also dangerous. We can't play just after the rain because the ball, because the pitch would get wet and it would bounce straight up as well. And we can't play later on because the ball is rubbish and we might also damage the pitch. We've basically created a sport that in England, of all places, that cannot be played in the rain, which is hilarious. That it could, Of all the places that this sport would ever have got big in England. So the only way to really get around this is to find a ball that is not leather, that still degrades. So the great thing about baseball doesn't matter. You throw a baseball, it gets hit out of the park, you get another one. It's almost always a brand new sort of ball, right? Cricket, we actually want this to last for 80 overs, which is, I, I've got to start doing better maths than this. What's that? 400 odd pitches, 500 odd pitches, right? Um, we want it to degrade. This is what it starts like. This is pink, so I can't help you there, but it should be red. Uh, but this is what we use for day night. This is what it ends like. It has to go from this to become this for our sport to work, right? If it stayed like this the whole time, no one would ever score any runs because of this big seam in the middle, it swings around everywhere. You need it to, you need it to um, degrade into this so that the game is balanced, right? The problem is there aren't that many synthetic substances that degrade well, as, as you might have known from us ruining the planet with plastics. So we haven't found at this stage a, um, something that will do that. The second thing is, as I said before, we're still playing on turf. Now, I think one day, and we've already started to do this, we'll have a hybrid between grass and synthetic. So what we'll do is there'll be a synthetic matting sort of weaved into the surface with grass on top. I still think that if someone's bowling one of these things at 90 miles an hour and it's a little bit wet, that that's going to make 
uneven divots on the pitch. I could be wrong, uh, but I don't want to be the person with a bat in my hand to work that out. Uh, so it means that we're always going to be limited by rain. The only other thing that we can do is have roofs. The problem is, as you probably know in America, they're not particularly cheap to put up. And also cricket is a regional sport. So you play, so if, if you have a test match, you only get like one a year and you will play a lot of lower level, like minor league cricket, essentially, right? The rest of the year, you can't justify having that roof. And so financially, it doesn't really work. If we, if we did it in a different way, maybe one particular sport, uh, one particular part of the sport could do it or whatever. Um, and then the third problem is that if you have a sport that is played on turf, having a roof is not a particularly good thing in growing that turf. So we have one ground in Australia at the Docklands and the pitch has never been that good, pr probably partially because they, they grow it somewhere else and then they bring it in for the summer and there's only like a slit of light that comes through. So it doesn't get as much light as anywhere else would and it doesn't grow as much as it needs to. Um, so we haven't really worked it out. I think the best way will be eventually we might be, if we ever get to a point where we can do a retractable cheap roof that at least stops the rain during the game um, but I'm not holding my breath. I mean, I might be alive when it happens. I mean, depending on Putin and Ukraine, we might <laughs> not be alive next week. But, you know, uh, there is a chance that they might get to it one day. But it's not, it, you know, I'm not holding my breath for that, for sure. I'm, I'm aware we don't want to keep you for too long. But uh, one, of the, one of the rules of changes that you mentioned, which is one that I, I guess I'm occasionally frustrated by, which is the sort of lack of a substitution process in cricket which particularly in test matches, if a bowler is injured, I mean, for listeners who are unaware, kind of way you have substitutions now is that a player can come onto the field to replace them, but fundamentally do no sort of key tasks. So cannot bat, cannot... You can come on and field. Yeah, they're you, just that's a, all you can a do. body. You can come on and field. Yeah. yeah. And in the old days, you weren't even allowed to wicket keep if you came onto the field. So if your catcher got injured, your wicket keeper, you couldn't even replace it. Someone else from the outfield had to come and catch. Um, that's how strict we were with the anti-substitution clauses in cricket. And I mean, I can maybe understand the idea of the sort of full substitution. What what blows my mind at times, and I know there was a, some controversy in the Big Bash League uh, this this well last season when they're sort of abusing the spirit of the game by substituting a a batsman who was out there. It blows my mind in the limited over form of the game where you can't see that a batsman is struggling and not scoring at the run rate you would want and simply not opt to bring him off and bring someone else on with the requirement that obviously in the future you might have to bat again. Do you see any kind of solution or any movement within cricket for an alteration to the substitution policies? The fact that, so this is only the second time we've had open substitutions. So we had them in the early 2000s with something called the super sub rule, but it, did, it was terrible. It's like they wanted to bring substitutions in, but they were so nervous of what everyone would say. They made it impossible to use so that no one used it and it went away. The Big Bash has brought it in. It was my understanding that the 100, which is the new English version of the IPL or the Big Bash, was going to do it. The thing is that you have to understand that American sports are not like any other sports in the world in that they grew almost organically on their own. Most other sports don't have substitutions traditionally, right? So the earliest substitutions in football that I found was, I think, 19, 1853. Right, but they were pre-game substitutions from the team that you had named as your lineup, and I think it was because like the team bus didn't make it or something, right? And they had to change it. It it wasn't regular to have football substitutions until the nineteen fifties. I think rugby 
only brought it in maybe 20 or 30 years ago as well. So American sports were very big on that. So much so that, you know, in the NFL, you don't have to even be able to play offense and defense, right? And in basketball, no one is expected to play a full game. That's not the case. Obviously, look at, look at you know, soccer to this day. You have three substitutions. The majority of the players have to play all the game through. That's where you're coming from with England, a sport that was created in England. Now, the interesting thing about this is it creates two very, very divergent things. In the NFL, the person who is, let's say, the best uh, receiver of all time doesn't ever have to be good at anything defensive, right? So you get the absolute best cornerback going up against the absolute best receiver. I hope I've got those two positions correct in that. I think I have. Remembering back my John Madden experience, right? So you have to ask two best. In cricket, we have what is probably the opposite of that where you can have the world's greatest bowler. We had a guy once called Richard Hadley, played for New Zealand. He was the world's greatest bowler. And he was bowling to a guy called Mike Whitney for Australia, who if he stuck the bat up his ass, he wouldn't have been any worse. All right? Absolutely, you know, Frank, Edward, Abby, all three of you, similar batting talent to Mike Whitney. He understood what a bat was for, and he played the game, but he didn't know how to use it. He was a fast bowler, but because of the way that cricket was run, we had the ability where the greatest bowler in the world had to bowl to basically a bloke off the street. That's an incredible part of cricket that doesn't exist in other sports. If we go down the, the route that you're talking about, we lose something really, really interesting, which is that everyone has to bat in cricket. And occasionally, most people will bowl, right? Like you, you get in a normal game, you probably have like minimum five. You might get six people bowling. Sometimes you might get seven or eight people bowling, right? Again, most other sports don't allow for that. That's a really unique thing with cricket. The problem is <laughs> Mike Whitney shits. And most, more often than not, Mike Shitney, uh, Mike Shitney, sorry, Mike, <laughs> um, only last one or two balls, right? And sometimes it's the best thing in the world watching Mike Whitney try and save a test against Richard Hadley. More often than not, Mike Whitney's gone. And, you know, even if we have a chuckle, we've forgotten about it before. What you probably want is a sport with the absolute best bowlers face the absolute best batters, which is where baseball is going with. That's why designated hitter um, exists, right? Again, I'm completely on side with that. But one thing I think where baseball is always missed out compared to cricket is, and if you want any um, proof of this, have a look at the uh, young Japanese lad who basically took over baseball last year, is that when you have someone who can bat and bowl, there is absolutely nothing like it. When he's better than everyone at one form of the sport and is almost as good as them at the other form of the sport suddenly it's like you've got a rock star in your sport like that japanese guy doesn't even speak english you know um publicly in otani and yet i mean i don't even follow baseball and i probably know everything about him right at this point and we've had a bunch of those in cricket including a guy called imran khan who was so good at cricket that they gave him pakistan he's like now the prime minister of pakistan right i'm not saying that's going to happen with otani in japan but I'm not saying it's not going to happen, right? All-rounders are so dynamic and so sexy. If we go the specialist route in cricket, we will lose a bit of that, right? But the other side of it is, as you've already pointed out, it's like, this guy's not doing very well. Can we not just yank him and put someone else in who's more uh, better? I don't, think there's a, I don't think there's a sport that fixates as much on selection and who's in the team or not in the team as cricket because whoever's in the team is really important. If, if, if you make a mistake in your selection, for the next five days, that's all anyone's going to talk about. 
that doesn't happen in basketball or baseball or even soccer because just substitute them out and okay oh we you know we went into this game with not enough seven footers well we can bring another seven footer in oh we went into this game and we don't have you know enough grunt in the in, in the midfield we can bring a midfielder in we went into this game without a spinner in cricket well we're fucked <laughs> and that's the difference it's the genius of cricket but it goes the other way i think i even though i wrote about it in the in the test piece i think eventually that's where t20 cricket will go we'll have squads of 15 maybe even 20 and you'll just sub people in as you need them and it'll be the best versus the best um whether it'll ever happen in test cricket or not i don't know but i know that if we design test cricket today there's no way we wouldn't have substitution it just happens to be that the reason we don't have much day night cricket is because cricket existed before electrification and the reason that we don't have substitutions is that cricket was lit i mean put it this way we had a cricketer called wg grace who was famous all around the world before the modern olympics like cricket is so old and so big that a lot of the problems that we still have today is because it made a lot of sense in 1820. It's just that no one's gone, maybe 200 years later, we should change this. Yeah, and I, I love the idea of the of the all-rounder because we had Chris Cairns on last week and, and I asked him, you know, being an American, to <laughs> me, it's, it's something that's so different because in, in America, it's all about specialization. You know, you want to be, even mm. like now baseball's gotten so specialized that a pitcher just has to be the best at throwing like a fastball or like a cutscene, like one pitch. That's it. You know, you're not even a pitcher yeah. who has multiple pitches. Like you just want to be the best at this one. So that the idea of having someone who can bowl and bat is, is, is such a neat concept to me. I, I love, I, I love that aspect of cricket. Um, but I, I guess I'll give my last question then uh, since we're kind of running out of time. So I want to switch gears a little bit. So you co-wrote and co-directed uh, award-winning sports documentary, death of a gentleman. And I'm, I'm kind of cutting in here because Eddie is a, a self-proclaimed sports documentary enthusiast. So I, I kind of want to just hear about what was that process like? Because, I, you know, you called yourself, what, a, a cricket writer, but it's obviously a big shift. And, you know, you're doing your YouTube videos and, and you know, you have the gra graphics and videos, things like that. But this has got to be such a different jump and, and a leap into kind of a, a different aspect. So what was that like? And, and how long did that take? And just kind of walk us through that a little bit. Yeah, it was crazy. Uh, I mean, weirdly, it's the only thing I'm actually trained for. So I was, uh, I was a filmmaker when I was in Melbourne. Uh, so I was a high school dropout uh, and a gardening school dropout. I don't know if that matters, but I dropped out of both. Well, I was kind of kicked out of high school, I suppose. But that's anyway. Um, and when I was in my mid-20s, I went back to film school. And although I didn't pass, so I don't know if that counts as me actually doing that either. But I went to film school anyway. Um, and then we started doing those YouTube videos. So I started on my own. Then I started with my friend, Sam. And we'd done them for about a year. And no one was paying for them because it was before the whole pivot to video. Um, sadly, uh, if, you, if you're a media fan, you'll be aware of the pivot to video um, period. So we were just before that. No one was making it. was like uh, me and Sam were doing it on Cricket Info. And there was like men in suits. Is that what they're called? The American um, um, uh, football guys. There was, that was it of sports sort of like mainstream media on YouTube. It was like literally us, um, like, you know, the algorithm would suggest our videos or their videos. And after about a year of not getting paid, we were like, what's the next step? And so Sam says we should make a film, but cause I am a filmmaker. I was like, just so you know, Sam, that's really hard to make a film. It's not just, we'll make a film. Things need to have, people need to give us money, uh, all sorts of things. Cut to four years later and we made a film after scouring the earth 
for money after scouring the earth to work out what the hell was happening with cricket. Um, and I suppose it's a, I suppose it's a film really more about two people following something that they love, trying to work out why the people who run it are so either inept or corrupt. Uh, and if so, it becomes, you know, it probably started as more of a sports film and probably ends up more of a political sort of film. I mean, we had a camera operator and he'd worked in Kenya and Pakistan, I think. Maybe it was Afghanistan. It was one of the elections in one of those places. And in Kenya, he worked for an election as well. And we were in Dubai filming a cricket documentary. He goes, I feel more under pressure here than I did over there. You know, we were hearing things and, you know, they came after my job. Um, uh, they took our press accreditations away. Uh, you know, there were rumors that I could never go to Chennai again because that's where one of the guys who was very angry was going to, uh, I've been to Chennai again, great seafood. Um, uh, and uh, so it was four years of basically trying to build up enough money to make a film. And while we were making the film, we were really lucky that the evil people that we were making the film about decided to take over cricket. And so suddenly we went from having a film where we had to convince people there was a story here to being, no, look, it's on the front page. And we were ahead of the game. So we got very lucky at the end after three years of literally going up to people, trying to convince them of what was happening. I mean, you'd be shocked to know that people don't race to finance a film about cricket administration the way that you would hope. Uh, but by the end, it was, uh, I don't know, I don't know if sexy is the right term, but it was in the news enough that, you know, we, we got, but then we still, we couldn't sell it. We had huge per, uh, per cinema ratings because all of our cinema were, were sold out, but, the cinemas wouldn't show it properly because they said it was a cricket film and it wouldn't work. And then we couldn't sell it to anyone when we first had it. And then within about four to five months, suddenly Netflix bought it and they ran it for four or five years. Amazon prime bought it. And then suddenly it sort of exploded for us. Um, but it was, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. In some ways it was the most fun and the most terrifying thing I've ever done. Uh, I, there's absolutely no way I would ever get into a project like that again without knowing when we were going to finish the project. But I'm very glad I did it. And uh, I suppose pro professionally it helped a lot. But it's also, you know, it's, when you're a sports writer, I think a lot of your stuff is writing what happened yesterday, if that makes sense, which is great. And it's an awesome thing to be able to do. You know, doing a documentary like that, no one can ever accuse us of not putting our asses on the line for the sport that we loved. Uh, you know, it could have ruined my career. It almost ruined my career several times. Sam doesn't work in cricket anymore because of how much he felt alienated and let down by the cricket industry when that film came out, I think as much as anything. Um, and so it was tough, but Jesus fun, like going, you know, going through it, like, you know, some of the nonsense that we did. And, you know, I remember almost being arrested in an airport in India for getting my camera out and getting thrown out of the hotel in UAE and, um, you know, random things like that, like being, being eye to eye in, in some random place with a guy who was clearly a sociopath that if he could, would have you beaten, you know, all those good things um, you only get when you do an investigative journalistic sort of documentary. And I suppose that was my Louis Thoreau moment. And I realized at the end that Louis Thoreau and, and Michael Moore and Nick Broomfield must be absolutely out of their mind to continue to want to do this. They're so hard. And you find yourself in such situations where you're like, will I be able to get out of this? <laughs> Uh, more often than not. And mine was, as I said, it was a cricket documentary. You wouldn't really expect to be able to do that. Um, but that's where we were. Uh, and it, it was a lot of fun and uh, very hard. Uh, definitely not an experience you would associate with making a cricket documentary. I think that's for sure. 
And I mean, aware of the time, I think we've only kind of begun to scratch the surface of questions we'd probably like to answer you, ask you and, and topics we'd probably like to touch on. So it might be great to have you back on in the future and kind of have a part two where we sure. can dig into some of those areas. But, but Jared, it's been a pleasure speaking with you and, and thank you so much for, for giving your time to us. No worries. Thanks for having yeah, me on. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you.